message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, open your Bibles. We're going to be in two different places this morning. We're going to start out in Mark chapter 15. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question this morning. What is the nature of God? Now, I know that you've probably pondered that, maybe not always in a theological sense, maybe not even in a spiritual sense, but certainly just in a human sense, because perhaps one of the biggest questions of mankind is there a God, and if there is a God, what kind of God is he? What is the nature of this God? Is he a kind God? Is he a vengeful God? Is he a personal God or is he impersonal and and far off? Is it just one God, one solitary God, or are there many gods? Is this a God who favors us or does he oppose us? And if he does favor us, how do we gain that favor? What is expected of us in order to have favor with a holy God? Yet we ponder these things and when we look throughout the history of man and religion and his religious thoughts, we find that there's not one consistent answer, that mankind has come up with a variety of answers to that question about the nature of God or even the existence of God. And yet, I would say that the preponderance of of thought through the ages, in every culture, we see that there is a religion of sorts. There's a thought about God. And while there will always be some that say, well, no, there's no God. It's just what you see is what's here. Man has pondered this question about God and the nature of God since the beginning of man. In fact, the great theologian A.W. Tozer said it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, we can think about a lot of deep things, We can think about a lot of emotional things, love and feelings and and all kinds of different scientific things with our intellectual mind. But when we think about God emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, that those are truly the most important things about us. And so as we ponder, as we speculate, as we investigate who this God is and what he's like, we find evidence for Christians and we go to the Easter story and we begin to, to see a lot of the nature of this God. So I want us to share with you this Easter Sunday morning from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 15. And one of the things that you might notice as you open your Bible there is that this is in the middle of a passage about the crucifixion of Christ, his subsequent death and his burial. And what we see initially about this nature of God in this passage is that he's a loving God. He's a God that so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for us so that we, even though we were in our sin, might be forgiven of those sins because he would take them all upon him so that we could be with God for all eternity. See, we see this loving God, but what we see and what I hope will stand out in the passage that we look at this morning is not only is he a loving God, but he is an inviting God. This morning I want to share with you three examples from the Easter story about the inviting nature of our God. Let's begin with Mark chapter 15, verse 37 and 38. 
Christ is upon the cross, and uh, this is uh, uh, near the very end before he's about to die. And it says in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this curtain of the temple, the, the veil that was there, uh, is something that we begin to see in the Old Testament in the tabernacle setting when God instructed them to build a tabernacle. And it represented the dwelling place, the earthly dwelling place of God on earth with his people. And yet this veil would separate between where the people existed and where God existed. And uh, the Holy of Holies and, and, and the other parts of the tabernacle. The separation isn't because God didn't like us. It's because he is holy and we're not holy. And because he is holy, he, he cannot mix with sin. And so this, this veil was a separation. It was both symbolic in nature to remind man that, uh, that he was different from God, that God is holy, but we are not. Now, the veil of Jesus' day in the temple that was there in Jerusalem was reported to be as tall as 60 feet high and four inches thick. So this was a very much a barrier between where the priest would go and, and the common folks would go out here, the, the, those people that would worship, where they would come into the, the very back part and the Holy of Holies. In fact, the only invitation in to the Holy of Holies was uh, allowed by the, the, the high priest. He could go in there once a year to give atonement for the nation of Israel and as he would go in to give atonement for them, uh, they would actually tie a rope on his leg. For some reason, if God didn't accept this uh, offer of uh, and give atonement and, and the high priest would die, they would pull him out. I don't know that that ever happened, but they were always prepared for that because they took very seriously that going behind this barrier, this curtain, this veil, that you are entering into the presence of God, the holiness of God. One thing that we see in this veil when it's ripped from top to bottom is that God is inviting us in. The sin that separated us before, now he says, I've put upon my son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus dies, he takes on all the sin, this cup of wrath, God's judgment against sin in man, and and God places it all on Christ. When Christ dies and he takes the full brunt of this wrath of God, that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom by God himself and God invited us in. Can you really ponder such an invitation? That creator God would invite you, that he would invite me to be with him, to be his people. You know, I can only imagine when I was growing up, uh, you know, you always had your stars, your heroes. Most of mine were sports heroes. Perhaps my favorite of all time was John Smoltz, a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. I, I loved everything about John Smoltz. He, he was just a competitor. He was excellent at what he did, whether it was his starting years or whether he was uh, in those years when he was the reliever. And uh, he was just one of my favorites. And, you know, I can only imagine that even this day, 57 years old, if I got an invitation, received an invitation to dinner with John Smoltz, I would take it in a heartbeat. I would be all over that. To spend time with one of your heroes, 
to be able to sit down at the table and enjoy a meal and uh, have a conversation with one of your heroes, that would be amazing. Now, the only way I'm probably going to ever get that invitation is if I won some kind of a contest that I participated in and that was the prize, you know, because John Smoltz doesn't know me. God knows me. In fact, he knows me so well that he knows all of my sin. And yet what we see is this loving God is an inviting God. And this tearing of the veil is God's invitation. One sign of this characteristic of God, this nature of God, that he invites us in to be with him. And it can only happen because of the work of Christ. Look on to the next chapter, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. This is another part of the resurrection, the Easter story. This is actually the resurrection morning. And um, it says in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? These women wanted to express their love and their care for Jesus. And they there was a tradition among the Jewish people that you would prepare a body for burial. If you remember back when Christ was taken off the cross, the Sabbath was approaching and basically time ran out and they were not able to complete that task. And so these three come prepared with spices so that they might go in and finish that task. And, and yet on their way, they're, they're reminded that there's this huge rock, this boulder that seals the tomb that Christ was placed in. Plus, the Romans had positioned guards out there because they wanted to make sure that nobody would steal the body and somehow give evidence or make up the story that Christ had risen from the dead. And so we see in verse 3 that they ask a question. They say, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? There's a barrier between us and Christ. We want to go serve him, and yet how do we even gain access to his body? Now look at verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And I I love how the ESV puts it. It was very large. In other words, they knew that it wasn't just that, uh, you know, somebody come along or that maybe the wind blew and it blew off to the side. No, this was supernaturally done. And there was a provision there for them so that they could go in and observe what was inside where the body of Christ was supposed to be. Now, most of us have seen this representation of this huge stone and uh, what was it was there to seal it. The Romans, again, wanted to make sure that nobody could make up stories about Christ. But here's what our inviting God did. This inviting God removed the barrier that stood between where Christ was laid and these ladies. And now he had opened the door so that they could go in and finish that burial process. No, that was their intention. But God removed the barrier so that they could come in and observe that Christ truly had arisen from the dead, just as he said. See, this is the nature of our loving God. He invites us to experience the risen Christ. He he doesn't just tell us the story of that, but he invites us in. He removes barriers so that we might see what is done. 
He tears curtains. He removes massive stones so that we might know the hope that is Christ. There's a third invitation that I see as part of this Easter story. It happens uh, several days later. It's recorded in John's, John's Gospel in John chapter 20. I'll give you a second to turn over there. Now, if we go back to the actual timeline of the events, um, this is a time when uh, the disciples, uh, they have now discovered uh, that Jesus has risen from the dead. They were locked behind doors and they were frightful and fearful of what would happen to them. And we see in John chapter 20 that Christ comes and visits with them. Now, they know that the tomb is empty, and yet they haven't fully experienced all the you know uh, time with Christ. They're still battling doubt and fear. And look what it says in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. This is not a room full of guys celebrating, you know, chest bumping victory. <laughs> Even though the tomb is empty and, and they believe that Christ truly has risen from the dead, they need more of that experience. They need more of the hands-on. And so here they are in fear of the Jews. Why? Because they still don't know what people will do. If they hung Jesus, if they put him on the cross, what are they going to do with his disciples? So what? look what happens. Verse 19 again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus doesn't lecture them. He doesn't condemn them. I don't think that he shakes his head and goes, you know, tsk, 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 you know. My goodness, where's your faith? What does he do? Well, as we look in verse 20, he actually invites them to experience him. Look what it says, John 20, 20. And when he had said this, said, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Here Jesus invites them to see the wounds and what happens? The disciples were glad. They they went from a place of being fearful. He he pronounces peace upon them, peace be with you. But he doesn't stop there. He he says, experience me. You see, Throughout this series on doubt that we've been covering for the last five or six weeks, the one thing that I hope that you've learned is that you can love Jesus and want to follow Jesus and still have to wrestle with fear and doubt. These men had followed Jesus for three years. And they certainly had their spiritual highs and they certainly had their spiritual lows. But I do think that they loved Jesus I think it's without question that they had this desire to follow Jesus. And yet with human circumstances and and worldly things, that fears that would come upon them, uh, we see their faith kind of up and down and wavering. And it's not that the case with us. But maybe we really do love Jesus. And we really desire with all of our heart to follow Jesus. And yet because the worldly situations and different things, even this coronavirus, we we see our our faith kind of up and down. And there's days that we have tremendous faith. And there's other days that seems like we can't even muster up that mustard seed of faith. But you know, the story doesn't end there. Christ comes into a locked room filled with 
fearful man and he pronounces peace upon them. He asks them to come experience him. Look at, look at my hands. Look at my side. And they were glad because of that. But there was one disciple that was not there. Actually two. Judas is gone by this point. He's hung himself. But besides the betrayer, the other one that's not present at the time is Thomas. And as we've often called him, I don't know that it's the most appropriate name, Doubting Thomas. And this is a story about why he was doubting. One of the great questions that we don't have an answer for in uh, Bible uh, recording and in history, we don't know where Thomas was. Why were the ten disciples together, but Thomas was apart? But we see that he is apart from them during this time. And then look at what it says in John chapter 20, verse 24 and 25. The disciples begin to tell uh, Thomas that Jesus is alive. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is where he gets the name Doubting Thomas. He doesn't go on the words of his friends, even though I imagine that they are somewhat trustworthy. What he says is, you know, I haven't personally experienced this. Guys, you have the benefit of of being with Christ and seeing Christ and experiencing Christ. But he said, I, I haven't had that. And as much as I want to believe you, until I can actually experience Christ, I, I can't believe. He even says at the very end of that verse, I, I will never believe. This wasn't a little stumbling block. This was something that was huge to Thomas. Well, about a week later, in fact, eight days later, look what it says in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. So this time, the 11 remaining disciples are together. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Seems very similar to the time before. He finds them locked, still kind of fearful, even though he's already pronounced peace upon them. And he's given them the evidence that should increase their faith. He still sees that there's a certain nervousness. And and so he comes into the room, a locked room, and he says, peace be with you. And this is what I want you to, to, to see this morning. This is what blesses my heart and my mind so much. When Christ comes in the second time, when he sees Thomas, and I think he's probably fully aware of what Thomas had said about, unless I do this, unless I feel the, the holes in Jesus' hand, unless I experience Jesus and see for myself, I, I, I won't believe, I will never believe. Instead of a lecture, instead of shaking his head in disappointment, look what Jesus does. Verse 27. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What kind of God? What is the nature of God? He's a loving God that would send his own son to die for us, but he's an inviting God, people. 
This is a guy, Jesus easily could have lectured them. Oh, you of little faith. And there's many times that he did give that lecture to them. But on this occasion, when Thomas is, is not wavering, he's pretty adamant. I will never believe unless I experience Christ myself. Jesus comes in and extends an invitation to experience him. Now, I don't know, uh, the, the Bible isn't really clear if, if Thomas actually does this or not. Some commentators would say, yes, he, he went and he, he put his finger into the, the nail print of Christ's hand. He put his hand into the side of Christ. But we're not told that. In fact, the next verse is, is very straightforward and, and very simple. That upon this invitation, whether he touched him or not, look at the proclamation that Thomas makes. John twenty twenty eight, and Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. The invitation is to touch and examine Jesus. His conclusion is, This is my Lord, this is my God. With all the uncertainty that we have with the virus crisis right now, uh, maybe one of the things that we speculate is, is the nature of God. I, I love how Jared Wilson puts it in his book, The Gospel Wakefulness. He says, when doubt comes into our minds, that we have this invitation to, uh, and this opportunity from Christ to hurl ourselves at Christ. I love that phrase, to hurl ourselves at Christ. And with all this certainty going on right now, you know, there's certainly nights that we go to bed with questions in our mind, and when we wake up in the morning, not all those questions are answered. In fact, maybe perhaps throughout the night we've awoken and, and we've, uh, uh, you know, thought those questions through without getting answers. But here's one thing that we can experience. Here's one thing that we can know. That this invitation that was extended to Thomas... These barriers that were removed from God because he's an inviting God and he wants nothing to stand between us and him, that's what he extends to us and to you this Easter Sunday morning. John twenty twenty seven. Jesus said, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This morning with all of our questions, all of our doubts and our fears, we don't get a lecture from Jesus on this Easter Sunday morning. We get an invitation from Jesus. We serve a God that is not only a loving God, but he's an inviting God. A God that removes barriers like curtain veils that separate sin from sinful, sinlessness. Rocks that would keep us from discovering the truth of the resurrection of Christ and seeing an empty tomb. And he makes it as personal as his extending Invitation to Timothy here. Come, come see for yourself, Timothy. Touch my hand. Place your hand in my side. This is the God that we serve. This is the victory of the resurrection morning. That God has removed the obstacles in the way so that we can know the fullness of the gospel. That this Bible that we read and we study, that we can see the whole complete story that man in his sinfulness was separated from God, but God in his love for us provided a son, a perfect son, clothed himself in flesh, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, died, was buried, and rose again. 
so that you and I could have all barriers removed from us in this holy God. What an invitation. What a God. Here's my encouragement for you on this Easter Sunday morning. I want to leave you with these four things. Do we know when the corona crisis is going to end? No. (laughs) The best minds, scientific minds, the most talented uh, of, of doctors are scratching their heads. They have guesses and they have estimations, and yet nobody knows. When will we, will we be able to meet again as a church? Nobody knows. It may be weeks, perhaps even months. When will you be able to go back to your job? When will you get a steady paycheck? For some of you, that, that question is looming over you, and, and, and we don't have answers for that. So in a day of uncertainty, uh, let's take this God who is loving, this God who is inviting, and let's just clarify on this Easter Sunday morning four things that we know without a doubt that are truth because of Easter Sunday. Today, tomorrow, next week, a million years from now, God will still be on the throne and sovereign over all things. This we know to be true. Second truth, death and sin will still be defeated by the finished work of Christ. Once and for all, he went to the cross and he defeated death for all those that would place faith in him. A third truth, we know by the proclamation of God, not because of some wish or hope that we would have, that if we have put our faith and trust in Christ, then we are a son and a daughter of the living God and that we're in the firm grasp of his hand. And he said in this this fourth truth that we are sealed by God's very spirit. He comes and he dwells inside us, the Holy Spirit of God in us to seal us until the day of redemption. Lots of things that we don't know this morning, this Easter resurrection morning. Focus on those things that we do know because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you today that, Father, that we have this hope. But, Father, it's more than a hope, Father. It is truth. It is fact. Father, I thank you that you are a loving God. But, Father, today as we look in your word and we see you removing barriers that would keep us, Father, from the full experience of knowing you and experiencing you, Father, you removed them all. Father, you tore that veil that separated the, the, the outer part of the temple to the Holy of Holies. Father, you removed that stone that was sealing the, the tomb of Christ so that those ladies going that day, Father, that they could see that it was empty and that he had risen just as he said. And Father, I love this story of Thomas because I'm Thomas, Father. I'm the one that says, okay, unless you prove it to me, unless I can experience it myself, I won't believe. And yet, instead of a lecture, instead of a scolding, instead of even a look of disappointment, Father, you gave me an invitation to come and know you. So, Father, today, for believers, will you reinforce that in their heart and their lives? But, Father, if there is those that may be listening today, that they don't know you, Father. And Father, they know a little bit about Easter. They know a little bit about Jesus. They've heard the crucifixion. Father, thank you 
that you are this inviting God that invites them to know you and experience you. And Father, today, will you send someone their way? Will you allow them maybe even just to open up the Bible and read these precious words of the gospel, this good news, Father, so that they can in faith turn to you and experience you in the fullness of Christ. Father, we thank you for this day. And even though we're spending it apart, we thank you that we can worship together. And Father, we pray that you'd bless this today. Help us to go out and truly live in faith. Father, thank you that you pronounced peace unto us this day. And may, may we carry this peace in our, to our family, to our friends, and to all that we come in contact with. As we pray all of this in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.